biggest question that the world and individuals have had to answer over the last 2,000 years remains the biggest question today. It's a question that Jesus posed. And uh, you can read that in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. He was on his way to Caesarea Philippi. And as he was going into Caesarea Philippi, he said to his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And his disciples answered him, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah. And still others say one of the prophets. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? big question. Who do you say Jesus is? And that question is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is as large today as he was 2,000 years ago. He looms over the whole of history. More books have been written about Jesus than any other person in the history of mankind. More pictures have been painted about Jesus. More than the Mona Lisa, more than uh, Lady Gaga, more, more than Madonna, more pictures have been painted of Jesus than all the celebrities put together. His book, the Bible, is the best-selling book of all time every single year. In fact, it so surpasses the sales of the other best-selling books, they don't even put it on the list. The book of Jesus. Jesus is the, the dateline of the Western world is set before his life and then after his life. He looms over history. You can't ignore him. One of the questions every thinking man has to ask is, who is Jesus? Who is this massive figure that looms over history? Well, I first asked that question when I was about 10 years old. My dad came home and he announced to the family that he had given his life to Jesus. We didn't know what that meant when he first said it, but I witnessed firsthand my dad's life being radically transformed. And before my eyes, I saw the impact of Jesus on my dad. And so my first revelation of Jesus is that he's a dad saver. He's a life changer. He's a family transformer. He's a rescuer. He's a provider. He, he is a master that comes in and totally transforms families. That was my original view of Jesus. And, and actually, my life has been a pursuit of discovering who he is every single year. It grows and grows. Why? And it will continue to because he is an infinitely magnificent being. To my horror, though, when I went to school, there were guys in my class who hadn't come up to that conclusion. When I went to university, horror of horrors, my university professors were actually antagonistic toward Jesus. And so if I had to wrestle this thing through, coming to the answer to that question, who is Jesus? Every thinking man and woman has to face that question. It's one of the big questions of life. The Muslims have faced that question. The Muslims have said he was a prophet and he was a good man, but he was not the son of God. The Jews have a 
had a look at that question. The Jews have said he was the son of Mary, that he was crucified. And certainly the Jews in ancient times really believed that he was a miracle worker. Uh, these days, you know, the Jewish community is a little less uh, enthusiastic about Jesus. The Hindus have answered that question. Now, it's difficult to know what the Hindus believe because there is such a broad spectrum of belief within the Hindu stable, but, but they have literally millions of gods, and most Hindus would slot him in there as among one of the deities. If you go to more modern times, uh, if you had to ask a Russian communist, who is Jesus? There is such a thing as a Russian communist dictionary. And if you look for Jesus in the Russian communist dictionary, it'll say it. He is a mythical figure that never existed. Now, most uh, self-respecting historians wouldn't even give that uh, the light of day. If you want to understand what the Western world thinks about Jesus, you would look, I think, at CNN and places like the Time magazine. I, I looked the other day at what Time had to say about Jesus. Jesus is the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness, and love in the history of Western humanity. That's quite a compliment. But essentially what they're saying, he was a good humanitarian. He was a good dude. He was a good man. Now, that's not a very clever conclusion. It's not a very informed conclusion. You, you can't just write off this massive figure over history and say he was a good guy. C.S. Lewis, one of the great theologians and thinkers of uh, yesteryear, said this. Jesus doesn't give you the option to conclude that he was a good man because his claims were so preposterous. He claimed to be God. He claimed to have been risen from the dead. He claimed to be coming back again. He claimed to be able to come and save you and rescue you and fill you with his spirit. Those are not the claims of some good humanitarian. If you logical and serious about that claim, he was either deluded, or, or if he knew he was wrong, he was, he was lying, or it's actually true, and that is way beyond just a good dude. And so, this remains a big question. It remains as valid a question when Jesus says to his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? That question has been asked across our living rooms, across the world today. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, the most reliable place to go to the answer to that question is to the Bible. And so the book of Colossians really answers that. We're going to go to Colossians chapter 1. So if you could take out your Bibles, you'll probably find a few lying on the coffee tables there in your lounge. And we're going to go straight to verse 15. At the beginning of Colossians 1 through 14, uh, Paul in jail is writing to a brand new church plant and he's, he's greeting them firstly and then he's really saluting them for their faith and for sharing their faith. And then he says this, he begins, actually this is worded as a poem, the six verses we're going to look at today. 
It was a, a phrase to help them remember it easier. He wanted to exalt Jesus, to answer this question, who is Jesus? So he starts. Verse 15 says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Firstly, he says, God, as we know, is invisible. He's spiritual. No one's seen God, the Bible says. He said in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This verse says, he is the image. That Greek word is where we get the word icon from, symbol from. He is, he is the image of, he is the symbol of, he is the representation of God. So in other words, he's saying, if you've seen Jesus, you know what God's like. If you see the humility of Jesus, you see the nature of God. So, he, so God presents himself in Jesus' form on earth and says, that's me, loving, kind, gentle, holy, just, courageous, loving of people, rescuing of people. The nature of God was put on display by Jesus. So the first thing we understand from this little poem, from verse 15, is that he is God himself on display. And so what does that mean for you and me? Well, it means that we ought to be studying Jesus. Because if we study Jesus, we see God. And we get the, to the answer to that massive question. That's why we're going through this series through the book of Colossians, Unraveling Jesus. That's why we devote ourselves week in and week out to studying the scripture to see God. It's also another reason that we're doing church together, not retreating to our, our bathtubs and doing church online that way by ourselves. Because we, the Bible says that we, we are the light of the world. We see Jesus in each other. Because as Jesus manifests himself in us, we see aspects and elements of Jesus. Our pursuit is to see the image of the invisible God. Number two, verse 16. The poem goes on. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible and he talks about powers and authorities. And this is what he says. All things have been created through him and for him. Not only is he God, but he's also creator. Jesus, who's Jesus? He was in creation, mystically involved in creation. And not only was he involved in the creation of the world and you and everything that has been created, all that creation was created for him. That has some serious implications for us. So don't let uh, your uh, preconceived ideas stand in the way of understanding that God is magnificently powerful and a creative being. He is the origin of creation. Not only is he that, but he is the reason we have been created for him, for his pleasure. And that has implications for you and me. I'm build, building a house at the moment. And um, as most housing projects go, I ran out of money before I was finished. So I'm having to do the finishing touches myself, hanging doors and building cupboards, etc. Now, I'm not really handy, so I've had to get my dad's help. But if you arrive at my home, there's these massive barn doors hanging at the end of my lounge. 
they, they, they're stunning, if I say so myself. And if you ask me, who did those doors? I'll say, I did. But if you press me a little more, I'll have to confess that I was in the workshop. I bought the wood. I had a lot to do with the design, but my dad is the dude who had the tools and who knows how to do that better than me. So he did most of the work. And once I hung them, those doors were for my pleasure. And they were designed for me, and that's where they're designed to be. Quite frankly, if you left them somewhere else, they would just be pieces of wood. The creation, we don't fully understand it, but God was involved in creating it. But this is the most important thing about creation. It was made for Jesus. And so when your life is lived for him, it has purpose. When it's not lived for him, it's like lying on a trash heap. You know, when people are running around like uh, fleas in a fit, quite frankly, right now, we can lose sight of this, that actually all we do, all we breathe, all we are with our families are created for him. And when we're doing it for him, it has meaning. When we're doing it for ourselves or for survival's sake, it loses meaning. Number three, verse 17 says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. There are two things being said there. In him all things hold together, and he's head of the church. So it's basically saying the stars that are floating in the galaxies, uh, everything that's going on in the world today is being held together by the grace of God. If God lifted his hands from the creation, what would happen is that we would be like independent members just floating around in space. He sustains all things. He holds you together, sir. I had an incident when I was about early 20s where I really, the bottom fell out of my world. I became extremely anxious, depressed, did not handle life. I tried all sorts of things. And then this revelation hit me that God himself can give me peace. Philippians chapter 4, and his peace is given to God, my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And I had an encounter with God then, 27 years ago when he got hold of me, and I believe with all my heart that he holds me together. He holds all things together. If you feel like you're feeling apart right now, God sustains all things. You can come under his hand, and he will hold you together. Not only does he hold all things together, it says he is head of his church. So in the midst of creation, there is this body called the church, and he's the head of that church. This is Jesus we're talking about. Now think, think about your head. Think about my head. A head is eyes, which, uh, or, or which we look at the world and discern the world through. And it has a control center in your head. So, so the head is what makes decisions and navigates your body's path in the world. Jesus is the head of his church. He's the decision-making center and the lens through which we see the world. The world right now is unrecognizable from what it was three weeks ago. If we try and look at the world, you know, through the members of our own intellect, it's like trying to see the world through your kidney or through your shoulder blade. No, no, we should be taking our cue from the head, who is Jesus, and seeing the world through his eyes, his perspective, 
is eternal wisdom, which the Bible says is foolishness to the world. Number four, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. He is the firstborn. What does that mean? Well, you can interpret that wrongly, like the Jehovah's Witness sect has done. They have said that he is the first created being. So they say that Jesus is a creation of God. That is not what that word means. That word firstborn in the Greek is protokos, which uh, literally means master and Lord. He's the first master. He's the first Lord. If Paul was writing in connection with his kingship, firstborn also carried with us the concept of inheritance. Jesus is the first Lord, first master, and he inherits the world. And so what he's saying in this stanza of the poem is you wanna know about Jesus? He's the Lord, he's the king, he's the master, he's the inheritor, and that brings such comfort to us in times like this. He's in charge, he's not concerned, and we his subjects come under his government, his lordship, his rule. And so lastly, verse 19 says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What does that verse say? We've seen God is, Jesus is God, Jesus is creator, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the peace giver. He's called Prince of Peace. So if you're sitting in that room today and you, you're anxious and you're worried and you're a believer in Jesus, he is the Prince of Peace and I believe he's gonna minister to you in a few moments if he hasn't already. If you are not yet someone who's made up their mind who Jesus is and you've been sitting there listening today and you're thinking, wow, I'm actually needing to make a decision on who Christ is, whether I'm with him or not him, this should give you serious motivation to do so. Because this verse says that his cross is the means by which the Prince of Peace comes to you. You see, what Jesus did is that he came to represent you and me on earth. And so he hung there on the cross naked, representing your nakedness. He hung there without calling legions of angels, representing your vulnerability. And he took the hostility of the world the violence of the world, the anxiety of the world, the stress of the world, the sin of the world upon himself. And as he was killed, he went through the logical consequence of all that anxiety and pain and stress and sickness, which is death. And that is the logical conclusion for all of us. Without Christ, without God, that's the conclusion. We can live our life on earth, but that's the conclusion. But it doesn't end there for the Prince of Peace. Because he was perfect, because he was God, God raised him from the dead and opened a way for human beings to be united with God again. Remember, God had created the whole world for his pleasure. And what sin has done and man's independence has done is like run, mankind has run off away from him. It's like my doors in my lounge running off and just falling onto the scrap heap. That's what mankind has done, but Jesus, through his walk on earth and his uh, 
identification and His resurrection has made it possible for us to be united with God again. And, And so, my friends, this is what the Bible says. There is no way to get to the Father. There is no way to be united with Him except through Jesus. I am the way, Jesus said. I am the truth. He had gone through the grave. He had gone back into heaven. And he said, look, here's the highway. You've got to surrender your life to me. Surrender lordship to me. You, you designed for me. When you yield, when you surrender, when you give your life to me, he says, when he comes in, he comes in with peace. He comes in with eternal life. He comes in to establish godly government back in your world. So we're going to draw to a close now. I wonder if you could bow your heads in a word of prayer. If you today realize you need to make a decision about who Jesus is, and that to now you've been seeing him as a good man, a moral man, a miracle working man, a prophet, but today you realize he needs to be your Lord. The way he becomes your Lord is you surrender to him. You turn your life over to him. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer now of surrender. And as you pray this prayer, you're saying, God, God, my life is yours. And then he saves you. He changes you. He forgives you. He brings peace to you. Pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I surrender. Surrender my sin to you. I surrender my life to you. I surrender my my efforts to you. And I ask you to transform me. I ask you to save me. I ask you to bring me into your family. I ask you, Prince of Peace, to bring the peace of heaven and the life of heaven into my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'm going to suggest to you, particularly if you prayed it for the very first time or haven't been in church for a long time, phone the person during the week or WhatsApp them during the week or maybe even catch them afterwards with a cup of coffee tell them, you know, I prayed that prayer of surrender. That's why we're doing church and homes, is to present Jesus to you and to others in the neighborhoods. Now for everybody else in that room, and including you who've responded already, I believe with all my heart that the Prince of Peace wants to come upon those living rooms right now by the power of His Holy Spirit. As He came upon me when I was 24 years old, this is what He says, come to me, it's Philippians chapter 4, come to me with prayer and thanksgiving. I will give you peace. I will give it to you. It's a gift. You can ask for it right now. I'll give you peace that passes understanding. You see, there is a type of peace you can get through medicine and therapy, and that's, that's pretty cool, but that's a peace through understanding of medical science and, and therapy. He says, I will give you a peace that surpasses understanding to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. I believe the Holy Spirit wants to bring that peace now. 